whoa, it happened so fast. We are already at episode two. How exciting is that? I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we will be discussing the history of archaeology, museum collections, and their not-so-ethical origins. So let's get started, shall we? The field of archaeology is a young science and still a very evolving science. That being said, its uh, foundations were the furthest thing from honorable. It grew out of an older discipline called antiquarianism. Antiquarianism studies history through ancient artifacts or historical manuscripts. Archaeology goes a step further by applying more science and going beyond that. We are talking about excavations of sites and materials and remains of past human life and more. But in its earliest days, archaeology was originally a device in which museums and private collectors could amass historical relics of what they hoped would be of great significance. This took precedence over careful analysis of those same objects and trying to interpret or understand the culture and context from which they originated. Today, an extremely large majority of excavated artifacts line the inventories of various global institutions where they are sometimes categorically filed, never to be seen by human eyes again. And that's crazy. Uh, Just think about it. Museums across the world are putting away ancient relics or inscriptions or statues and more in their vaults, in their basements, or somewhere, and many of us are either unaware of its existence or will never see them. I mean, it isn't like there's enough space to display it all. And I understand why, but it is sort of depressing if you think about it. And I know from experience, I cannot tell you the countless number of times that I would reach out to a museum after uh, perusing their catalog and asking for special permission to not only visit their institution, but to also study and photograph the objects in question. I mean, it sort of feels like archaeology, you know, digging through the uh, museum catalog to find an object of interest for, for research purposes. Anyway, I digress. In its early years, though, the profession, that is archaeology, was often labeled as one of looters and treasure hunters and, well, grave robbers. How many of us are sitting back right now and just thinking about our good old friend, you know, the adventure, Indiana Jones? Methods of excavation were at times disastrous, where dynamite was often part of the archaeologist's arsenal of tools alongside the pickaxe and the trowel. The earliest excavators uh, to venture off on this path of discovery were, were amateurs, and they didn't know what they were doing. They were defining the discipline as they were going along. They sort of learned by experience. I'm immediately reminded of uh, Heinrich Schliemann, who excavated the city and citadel of Troy in uh, northwestern Anatolia during the the end of the 19th century. He would just dig these large trenches through the site to get to the layer of settlement he believed was Priam's Troy and the Troy of Homer's Iliad. This destroyed the site, and as a result, we cannot get it back. Again, in the 
early days, even more alarming was the fact that archaeological efforts were often funded by private investors and institutions in an attempt to validate the literature of the Greco-Roman classical world or the Bible. I cannot stress this enough. It was a heavily biased discipline. Up until this point, history, or at least the history we knew and understood, was whatever the Greeks and Romans wrote and was preserved through the medieval ages and what the Bible stated. This surviving literature, which included mythology, set the tone for identifying and documenting our human history. In his book, The Land of Ionia, Alan Greaves summarizes this best. I will share some of the highlights. The aim of classical archaeology has often been to establish, wherever possible, connections between the material remains of the Greek and Roman cultures and their literary and historical legacy. However, in our eagerness to make such connections, we can sometimes make associations between the archaeological evidence and passages of ancient history, which might subsequently be interpreted differently or indeed challenged. When dealing with the archaeology of periods and cultures for which there are few, if any, historical accounts, there is a tendency to attach excessive importance to known events. This fixation on events and the desire of archaeologists to identify them in the archaeological record has the potential to cause misinterpretation of the archaeological record as we seek to prove the truth of these events. The first event that comes to mind is the Trojan War. And if the listener recalls, I discussed this in length in our last episode, so there won't be a repeat of it here. I also want to bring up another major pain point about archaeology, which still is a valid issue today. Even when we approach archaeology from a purely scientific route, issues still exist. Quoting Greaves once again, it has long been recognized that the very act of excavation destroys that which we dig. And therefore, once a site has been dug by archaeologists, it has been destroyed. The need to create and make public systematic records of what is found during these excavations is therefore paramount. However, a recent development in theoretical understanding of the nature of archaeological evidence has been the recognition that the very act of excavating and recording is, in itself, based on interpretive decisions by the excavator. That is to say that we archaeologists create what we find by the choices we make about where and how to dig. Most archaeological evidence is therefore subjective, not objective in nature. So what if the excavators yielded more questions than answers during the excavations of a particular site? Without supported evidence, early archaeologists have done the unforgivable and filled in the gaps. That is, they fabricated details so that they could make for a better narrative. Maybe they would rely on ancient authors such as the 3rd century BCE Manetho to tell them that the Hyksos during the Egyptian second intermediate period and right before the New Kingdom period were the Israelites of the Exodus. Or when deciphering the early 4,500-year-old Bronze Age text from the Syrian site of Ebla, connections were made with the cities listed in the Bible, such as Sodom, because, well, that is all we had 
and all we knew. What about the events surrounding the siege of Masada in eastern Israel? The first century Josephus gives us the story that we know, the one where the Roman troops laid siege to the site, trapping a rebellious group of Jews, and resulted in a mass suicide of nearly 1,000 people. The archaeology does not seem to corroborate this, but it is the only story we know. Besides, let us not ignore the fact that there would have to have been survivors to tell the story in order for Josephus to learn and write about. The thing is, today, we are rewriting those fabrications or ancient tales with new discoveries. It is a very time-consuming process, and being the destructive science that it is, Archaeology relies solely on the interpretations of its excavators. Remember, once you dig an object out of the ground, it is removed from its historical context and therefore can never be appropriately reanalyzed. That is why careful and detailed notes are constantly taken in the field. Now let us revisit the idea of the museum. I love museums. I feel at home at a museum. I do not live far from the University of Chicago and specifically the Oriental Institute of Chicago located on its campus. It has one of the most beautiful collections on display ranging from Mesopotamia to the Levant and Anatolia in Egypt. The institute itself was founded by the well-renowned archaeologist and Egyptologist James Henry Breasted in the early 20th century. But just like anything else, its collection, at least in the beginning, was amassed by attempting to bring the Bible, and more specifically, the Old Testament, to life. This isn't just with the Oriental Institute. Institutions in both England and the Americas were in a race with one another. The headlines of the day would have read, the biblical city of XYZ has been discovered, or Abraham's Ur discovered. What about the time when George Smith of the British Museum discovered the flood story or a flood story of biblical proportions in the 11th tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh? He was so excited. I guess excited is a word we could use to describe it. Anyway, he was so excited that he began to undress himself immediately afterward. I'm not sure why, though, but imagine for a moment. This is the late 19th century. Cuneiform and the Akkadian language were being deciphered. In the same century, but earlier, Egyptian hieroglyphs were also deciphered. This was a period of great historical discovery. A lot of work needed to be done to figure out our place within recorded human history. What is it, though? Why? Why do we do this in the first place? The desire to have something that no one else can touch or hold, or even in some cases see. It brings with it control and power. I am reminded of a story uh, written by the first century Roman author and philosopher Pliny, the Elder, and in his natural history collection. In 58 BCE, the Roman politician Marcus Emilius Scarus organized the extravagant Edilician Games. Scarus was described by Pliny as the first Roman collector. One of the largest attractions to his collection were exotic animals exhibited in the circus and in an artificial lake. 
The greatest curiosity, though, was that of a large skeleton from Joppa. It was said that this skeleton was supposedly the same sea monster exposed to Andromeda. Yes, the same Andromeda rescued by Perseus. Uh, many of us here should and probably already know the story, or at least to some degree. It was brought to the big screen in the, the film Clash of the Titans. It doesn't matter which version of the film you watched. We all know the infamous line, release the Kraken. Anyway, based on Pliny's description, many believe that this skeleton belonged to a whale and more, more likely a sperm whale. Sperm whales were not an uncommon ob observation along the Levantine coast, and especially in Jaffa. Who knows? Uh, this sperm whale may have been the remains of a sick or dying whale that, that beached itself. The site itself would or could have been an unfamiliar site to the ancients of the time. And because of its giant size, it only made sense to associate it with something fantastical, like the giant sea creature that was about to consume Andromeda. Here's the thing, though. We have gotten better. Although I shouldn't include myself, I'm not an archaeologist. So let me restate that. The field of archaeology has gotten better. To restate what I mentioned earlier, archaeology continues to be an evolving science. New technology and tools are now put into practice, which were not available in the early decades. In just the last 10 years alone, we are seeing the use of drones and computers in the field. We are seeing the use of radars such as LIDAR to scan the land long before shovel hits the dirt. Besides, now archaeologists and scholars are sifting through all of the early work, all those early excavations and translations and interpretations, and they are correcting all the early assumptions and misidentifications or interpretations of artifacts and data. In some cases, chronologies are being rewritten. And what about the museums and their collections? We are starting to see a lot of the artifacts go digital. This is amazing to me. In some cases, you can actually take virtual tours. There was more of an effort to establish this framework during the COVID lockdowns, but it still continues. I'm looking forward to seeing more of this in the future. There is one last topic I want to discuss. It is more of a question and an ethical one at that. Should these artifacts, or at least the ones with more historical significance, go back to their place of origin? For a long time now, the Greeks have been trying to get the Elgin marbles back from the British Museum, or Egypt demanding the return of the Nefertiti bust and the Rosetta Stone. There are so many examples out there. Do these museums have an obligation to return these artifacts? In some cases, they were taken without proper authority. I don't know, nor do I have the best answer, but I will say this. Do not forget about the Iraq Museum. During the 2003 invasion of Iraq, or I guess we call it the beginning of the Iraq War, when the United States, the United Kingdom, Australian, I believe, Polish troops invaded Iraq to depose Saddam Hussein and the uh, Ba'athist government. Proper measures were not taken to prevent the looting and destruction of the museum artifacts, and many ended up on both the black market and in the hands of private collectors across the globe. Even today, the museum is still struggling to track down and retrieve a fraction of what they once had. So 
what if disaster happens? Does it make more sense to house everything of significance or importance under a single roof? Again, I don't have the answers. And that wraps up another episode of Digging Up the Past. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com, assuming you can spell that. This is Petros Katupis signing off.